Hello and welcome to Star Cells and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Hugh Ross, and today we explore a number of topics. Jeff, you got a great topic for us. I got one that's a bit scary, but we'll get to it. But before we get into the discussion, I wanted to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, our Reasons to Believe channel, and follow us on social media at RTV underscore official so that you can be informed of our new videos and other content that we're producing literally on a daily basis. Jeff, tell us about the Jeff, tell us about the discovery you want to talk about. <laughs> well, yeah, Hugh, I've got a discovery about the uh, a team that has characterized a planet in a binary system. And just kind of for, for a little bit of historical context, this uh, as we started finding planets, one of the prevailing kind of thoughts was, oh, you can't get planets out of binary systems, or it's going to be very rare, if you will. And it turns out it is more rare than just regular systems. Right. But lo and behold, we found a fair number of stars. I think is about 4% of all the planets we've found have been around binary stars. And this goes back almost a decade that we've been finding these. So Yeah, I mean, well, we found, started finding planets in the early 1990s. 1992, I think, was the first one. Right, we right. found thousands of them since. Uh, most of the techniques we've had uh, tend to find, favor a certain class of planet around certain kinds of stars. But, you know, kind of somewhat to many people's surprise, as we found, as we looked at uh, binary systems, we did find planets around them. And part of what makes that challenging is like uh, one of the most prolific ways of finding planets is the transit technique. Well, in the transit technique, what you're doing is seeing the uh, planet cr cross across the face of the star, so it dims the light a little bit. Well, you need very stable light output from the stars to be able to see that. And in binary systems, you're going to get just changing light output because of the orbits of the, the stars and such. And so, Especially there's a third star. Exactly. And yeah. so these these our systems of finding or our techniques to find planets tend to not be real sensitive to binaries. But we've just been doing this long enough. We've got enough different techniques that, lo and behold, we found these planets in binary systems. And from an apologetic standpoint, why I find that interesting is, uh, you know, I mean, we've had numbers of discussions and uh, you've made statements in the past and I've made statements in the past of, well, you know, there's lots of stars out there, but we can rule out these kinds of stars and we can rule out these kinds of stars. And one of those stars you could rule out was binary systems. And most of the stars in our galaxy, probably in the universe, are binary systems. And so that just gets rid of a whole bunch of stars. Well, this discovery says you can't do that, at least not just whole cloth, get rid of right, those. Right. And so we need to be a little more careful about that. And so what I wanted to just talk about today are some of the things, what do these planets and binary systems tell us? And does that mean that we need to reevaluate all of these stars and say, all right, these are likely to have or, you know, a good chance of having habitable planets? And, and the, the short answer is, yes, we need, to be, we need to keep binary stars in the mix of planets that, or of systems that might have habitable planets. But there's a lot of things still working against having habitable planets in these systems. And so they're 
we need to be more sophisticated, obviously, because we've got new technology and, and our knowledge and our, our, our awareness of what the situation is has increased. But I don't think this adds a lot to, oh, we expect to find lots of habitable planets around binary stars. And so just to kind of, again, let's set a little bit of context. Most, you know, we, we orbit a single star. Uh, that allows for a lot of the stability that our, uh, you know, nine or eight planet, sorry, I keep wanting to include Pluto in there. It's just <laughs> hard to get away from that, um, that our solar system has. And when you throw a binary star into that, there's a number of things that come in. One is that having these two stars now there are gravitational interactions between the stars, which will tend to destabilize planets. I mean, even in our solar system, you've talked a lot about this, where having multiple planets, you've got the asteroid belts, it'll kick asteroids out as things move around, just that dynamic nature. Yeah, even Jupiter is an issue in that context. Exactly. So having multiple large bodies that have a lot of gravitational influence tends to not lead to really complex, stable systems. And our planetary system, I think, would be a pretty complex stable system. And so often what happens in these binary stars, it's not that, oh, every set of binary or any kind of random binary could have a planet. Typically, you end up with one of two scenarios. The, the binaries are very far apart, and the planet orbits around one of the stars. Orbits closely or, around. Closely around, yeah, so that the gravitational influence of that other star is not as great. Right, right. Or the binary system is very close, and this planet orbits around both stars. Right. And, you know, both of those present a, a few challenges. You, yes, you can get planets there. I still don't think you're, you're going to get planetary systems like you see in our solar system. And the other thing that I found very fascinating about this particular discovery was that it was not a transit discovery, it was not a radial velocity discovery, or even a uh, direct detection like the James Webb uh, was able to do with this recent planet, is that it was actually a discovery where they were looking at very long uh, VLBA astronomy, radio astronomy, and doing very precise timing and measurement of the orbits of the system. And what, lo and behold, what they found was that it couldn't just be a two-star system. There had to be a star and a planet in there. And so, you know, again, now you've got this system where you've got one star, another star, and a planet in there. The, the two planets are, or the, excuse me, the two stars are dwarf stars, which means they're smaller than our sun. I, I don't I remember exactly the masses, but they're probably something on the order of a tenth or less of the mass of our sun. And then you've got a uh, roughly two to three solar or two to three Jupiter mass planet, so the planet is not significantly smaller than the the stars itself. You know, right. just by comparison, I think Jupiter is about three hundred times less massive than the Sun, uh, which is a pretty pretty good mass difference. This one, you're talking mass difference on the order of something on the order of ten. Uh, which means that Jupiter plays a lot more dynamics in the actual interactions between the stars and, and everything. The Jupiter as well. type planet. Yeah. The Jupiter type planet. Yeah. So it's it's just a new. It's not a novel way of finding it. Uh, the earliest planets we actually found were using timing from pulsars, uh, which fascinating uh, that you can find planets around pulsars, but nonetheless not real useful for finding habitable planets. And so having a new technique where you come in and are able to find planets was cool. Uh, but what the kind of the big key thing they found out of this is that they were able to actually map out the entire dynamics of 
the binary system with the planet. And what they found was that the orbital plane of the binary stars was not aligned with the orbital plane of the planet. In fact, it was uh, the angle between those two planes is 148 degrees. Oh, wow. <laughs> which gives another interesting aspect of this is that, you know, so if, if the orbital inclination of the planet was zero, they would be co-aligned with one another. Right, right. And as it goes from zero up to 90, that would be, you know, interesting inclinations. Uh, but as it gets above 90, what that means is that the, the stars are orbiting in a certain direction. The planet is actually orbiting in a retrograde direction. And so this gives... Uh, a measure of how dramatic and how dynamic these gravitational influences are. Because in our solar system, effectively everything orbits, well, no, all the planets orbit in a prograde motion, the same direction as the star's angular momentum or our sun's angular momentum. In fact, almost all of the planets or rotate in that same, with the exception of Uranus and Venus, both Venus. of which have been knocked on their sides and have weird, ro very slow rotations. Uh, but you know that that's a planet that's spinning in a different direction. So to have a whole planet orbiting in the other direction causes a, would require a lot of gravitational disruption, which means that you could expect any sort of small planets in there would be very highly affected by these dynamic processes that are causing this Jupiter-sized planet to be orbiting in the reverse direction in which the stars are orbiting. Either that or there's something really weird going on about how the stars formed or how the planet formed. Was the planet captured? So there's all these different kinds of ideas about how you get this huge uh, uh, tilt. No, exactly. And, yeah. and that speaks to one, the, one of the cool parts of this discovery is that our knowledge of planet formation and star formation is pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of data that we have there. But the process of forming a planet, there's still lots of, is it this way or is it this way? Or what are the actual implications going on there? And almost all of that is in the context of planets forming around a single star. Well, now you throw another star into the mix and, you know, you've got this question of do, you know, as, as these gas clouds are collapsing down to form stars, do you get turbulent disk fragmentation or turbulent fragmentation or does it form a disk that then fragments into different objects? And that's what d does it um, that those tend to produce very wide separated or narrow separate or closely separated binaries. So we're getting more and more data by actually measuring all the dynamics of this system that allow us to pin down and get more insight into what is the actual process of planet formation. But you also see that, yes, we found a planet, a Jupiter-sized planet, around a binary system, which is unusual because generally dwarf systems don't form large, massive Jupiter-sized planets. So here we've got this Jupiter-sized planet around dwarf-sized stars. But the question is, you know, again, what's the, what's the formation mechanism? In our solar system, we expect there's a large gas cloud, collapses, forms a star, there's a disk, the disk fragments, forms all the planets, the planets migrate, and you can get a system out of doing that. If the Jupiter just fragmented out, Jupiter-class planet fragmented out of the cloud, then you're not probably going to get a lot of the other smaller planets, just, habitable planets it's like It's not Earth. a standard planet. Exactly. It could have been three objects that kind of formed 
but because one of them was tiny, it didn't become a star. Right. The fact that there's only a factor of 10 between the star's mass and the planet's mass means this may not be a standard planet formation. I think what's interesting, Jeff, though, is now that we're beginning to accumulate a decent database on planets orbiting binary stars, are we seeing statistically more disturbed systems with binary stars than we are with single stars that have planets? I mean, you do see disturbed systems around single uh, stars. So when you say disturbed system, what do you mean by that? Well, like where the tilt of the uh, uh, planetary orbit it was a 148-degree shift. Yeah, this one was 148. zero. Right. That's a disturbed system. Okay, okay. so where the orbital inclinations are right. not the same. Yeah, gotcha. Or you know, where it's highly elliptical, that's another example yeah. of a disturbed system. Well, I, I do know in these it's hard – it's kind of hard to get a lot of dynamics out of this. One, because the techniques we use to get a lot of those, the radial velocity and the uh, uh, transit technique – those are hard to find, or you know, these sorts of systems become more difficult uh, to find in that. Or you know, the binary planets around binary systems are about four percent of the systems, and so there's not a lot of them out there. It's going to take a lot more statistics to get the the and data there. But you you're, you're raising a good point. These are not kind of your standard. Oh, we expect to find planetary systems which have Jupiter's protecting the inner planets from collisions, stable Earth-like planets in Earth-like orbits around the star so that you've got stable climates on the planets itself. These, these are not the places you'd expect to find habitable planets, right, right. even though we're starting to find planets in binary systems. Well, one thing that excites me is that we actually do have a planet uh, orbiting the nearest star. And it's uh, a, it's a three-star system. Right. And so and we can actually go there. It's close enough that we might even be able to go there. It's a long-term project. Correct. Now, that is true. So. But uh, there actually is a serious plan to go there and get detailed observations. So the fact that we have a uh, – not, it's not a binary system, a three-star system with a planet orbiting the smallest of the three stars. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that's what's fascinating, you know, to kind of throw in another discovery is that James Webb found a – uh, a planet around a dwarf-type star, which is the closest star is a dwarf-type star as well. But they were saying that the sensitivity of James Webb to exoplanets, these direct detection where you're actually finding the light from the planet itself, uh, which is a whole lot more, that's a lot more informative than just finding the orbital parameters from right. how the starlight is affected. Uh, that they were saying that for the closest stars that we might be able to find an Earth-like planet orbiting kind of in a one to two, or you know, I think it was like half an astronomical unit out to two and a half astronomical units around the closest star. So not only might we be able to send something out there and make direct measurements, even before that, Webb may be able to give us information from the of about the light from the planet itself orbiting this uh, yeah, Centauri so you can get system, a, a spectral measurement of the atmosphere, right. and you know what's in the atmosphere. So yeah, and that, and that's one of the big questions. We can talk about habitable planets all you want, but the only information we have about habitable habitability at this point is where is the orbit located. And could it be in the range where liquid water might exist? But what we don't know about any of these planets is what are the atmospheres? Because if you take Earth and give it a different atmosphere, even though it's in the middle of this habitable zone, it's going to become uninhabitable because it's got the wrong kind of atmosphere. Yeah, so that, that would be a great observation. And liquid water is only one of many habitable zones. Exactly, so yeah. So if you want it to be habitable, it's got to exist in all of them. 
So, and that's what I find fascinating about this is you know you could have made a prediction uh, you know let's say thirty years ago that yeah we're going to find planets around lots of different kinds of stars but we would expect that the conditions for habitability are not going to be met around these so we're going to find lots of planets but very few that meet all the characteristics of having actual habitable potential. Well, we're finding an abundance of planets now around binary stars, something you might not have expected before. But even in the midst of finding them, it's not like, oh, it opens up all these new habitable options. What we're finding is in those systems, to the extent we can measure it so far, none of these look like they're going to be habitable. And we don't expect Earth-like planets in habitable orbits to even exist around these because they're just pretty dynamic systems that are not going to allow the stability of an Earth-like planet in those systems. Yeah, and the liquid water habitable zone is the most generous of the planetary habitable zones. Right. So if that's all you look at, you get an inflated number. Yeah. So. Well, I think we're going to find that there are not a lot of Earth-sized planets in these binary systems just because the... I'm. We're going to find occasional one, but it's not going to be a large fraction of them. Well, something would be we my already prediction. know is that the smaller the mass of the star, the smaller the masses of the biggest uh, planets orbiting that right. star. And so, given that these are dwarf stars, uh, you know, the, that, that that that's what I think is interesting. They found a really big gas giant planet, mm -hmm. and that's like that's not what we expect. So maybe this isn't a true planet. That's kind of what you're suggesting. Or at the very minimum, it's formed by a very chaotic process that though there may be a large planet in there, there's not going to be the small planets because of how the, the odd formation process. Right, so, right. you know, I, I, you one of the things I remember when I first met with you decades ago, one of the ideas you put in my head is that you don't have to worry about scientific advances because if God is who he says he is, his word's going to show himself, show itself true. And this idea that uh, Earth is the only place in the universe where life might exist, or rather all the statistics say that this is the only place where it is. I, I think what your comment opened up to me, it's like there may be other places out there, but as we continue to investigate and the more we learn, there, there may be discoveries that say, oh, this is not, you know, God isn't who he says he is. But as we give it time, as we understand and really understand the system and understand what's going on, that's always going to come back and say, yeah, what God's revealed is faithful and true. And so, you know, finding binary plan or planets around binary systems, oh, that opens up all these possibilities. Maybe there isn't, maybe Earth isn't unique. And then as we investigated more, yeah, there may be planets around binary systems. Yes, there are. But even that still points to well, as you've written, the rareness uh, of Earth. Jeff, is that you know God uh, may decide to make more than one. Absolutely. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, if it's God that's making it, we would expect to see fine-tuned designs. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what we've been seeing these past 30 years, is the more we learn about these extrasolar planets, uh, the more fine-tuning we're discovering that's needed in order for life to exist on those planets. And I expect that's going to continue. It's like, gee, almost every year that goes by, we discover a new habitability requirement. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, we're up to, what, 14 or 15 of them now. Uh, so I expect that's going to continue. And what's cool about that is that we just get to go out and keep studying and not have to worry about what we're going to find. And we, we, can, we, can, we can go study with confidence. Right. 
knowing that God's word is going to be faithful. And we don't have to worry about becoming unemployed because we now know everything there is to know about the universe. Solid point. (laughs) (laughs) Solid point, Hugh. So it means that uh, this show is going to continue on and on (laughs) because there's always more and more to learn about the marvel that God has designed for us. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but we're going to talk about a little video clip that we want you to see uh, about one of the books that we've just released. If the Earth is truly the perfect home for humanity, why is the universe so deadly and dangerous? It seems that at every turn, doomsday for mankind is just around the corner. But what if all that appears so deadly and dangerous actually makes the flourishing of human life possible? Join astrophysicist Hugh Ross as he explores the fine-tuning of the outer reaches of our galaxy down to the depths of Earth's core. Visit reasons.org slash to the core to learn more. Well, Jeff, uh, I'm going to talk about a discovery that's got nothing to do with astrophysics. Okay. Uh, you know, I read the scientific literature. I come across stuff in all different scientific disciplines. Says, boy, this is really cool. And the one I'm going to be talking about is uh, snakes. All and right. I was referring to a particular kind of snake, a boa constrictor. And, uh, you know, I don't know about your kids, but uh, friends of my kids... Mm, my wife wasn't too happy about having a pet snake. We had all kinds of other pet reptiles, but she drew the line at snakes. But their friends said snakes. And, uh, you know, boa constrictors are a popular pet because, you know, it's, a, it's a, a non-venomous snake and it doesn't get that big. Uh, the biggest boas are like 10 feet long. So it's like... It's pretty good size, though. Pretty good size, but it's not going to be a threat to any human being. So uh, all right. as long as you keep it well fed... <laughs> They're not big enough to, to, to eat you. So. Right. Although I do remember, uh, I wasn't a boa constrictor. I was spending a week in Honduras up in the mountains there, and uh, the host told me, Hugh, when you go for your morning run, stay on the road. I know you love trails, okay. but don't go any of the trails. And I said, why? And he says, well, about a year ago, I went on one of the trails, and I stepped on this log, and the log was squishy. Uh-oh. And I realized I stepped on a giant uh, a constrictor snake. Oh, no. <laughs> Fortunately, it was asleep, so and it was well-fed, so oh, he yeah. was okay. But he says, you never know. Wow, okay. <laughs> so not all logs are real logs. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, that's... So well, I, I, I stuck to the roads. Gotcha. No, that's, that's probably a good plan, so... But what's interesting about these uh, boa constrictor snakes is that, you know, they eat their food whole. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they can eat big uh, prey because uh, their jaws can detach so that uh, the, the hinges detach. They can open up their mouth and they literally can swallow their, their prey whole. But I remember when I first learned about these when I was a kid is saying, well, you know, you'll look at this huge prey that's sitting in the intestinal tract of this uh, snake. How does it breathe? Because, you know, if I eat a really big meal, it's, you know, you kind of got to rest. Right. But, you know, here's this enormous piece of prey in the snake, and it still seems to be breathing comfortably. What's going on? Okay. Well, it was a group of scientists that looked at that and said, maybe there's more going on than what we have uh, recognized about these snakes. And so they began to examine uh, what happens uh, when a boa constrictor uh, basically sits in ambush because that's how they how they feed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll sit hidden in a tree and they wait for some prey to come upon. Then they'll drop out of the tree and they'll put coils around it 
And what they discover, first of all, is this idea that these snakes squeeze their prey to death uh, really is uh, an overinterpretation. Okay. They don't do that. Uh, they're not strong enough to do that. But what they do is they coil around their prey and, uh, you know, apply pressure sufficient to induce cardiac arrests. Okay. So it's not like the prey dies from asphyxiation. It's that they're being squeezed to a point that it does generate cardiac arrest and it dies and then the snake eats its prey. Well, that's a better way to die. I mean, dying by asphyxiation, neither one of those is particularly pleasant. pleasant. No. (laughs) However, it's a lot less energy intensive for the snake to induce cardiac arrest than to try to kill their prey through asphyxiation. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what they figure out. These snakes aren't that big. And uh, yet, you know, how do they pull this off? And so they said, we got to ban this idea that they're asphyxiating the prey. Okay. Uh, so, because they simply wouldn't survive if they had to induce that much energy. Uh, but what they also discovered is that, uh, you know, these uh, creatures have lungs just like we do. Okay. And like in the human body, the lung is in a particular space. And so the whole idea is, well, what if the snake has to use that part of its ribcage where its lungs are? Uh, isn't the snake going to asphyxiate itself when it's trying to, uh, you know, uh, squeeze its prey? And okay, so this isn't about the, the food passing by that particular section yet, or maybe that's later, but it's well, about... Well, it was the discovery of the food going in and how big a piece uh, of prey they can consume mm-hmm. that said... Maybe there's something going on in the anatomy of okay. the boa we don't understand. And that's when they began to look at, okay, well, how is it able to squeeze and breathe at the same time? Mm-hmm. And they thought, well, well, maybe it's because the boa only uses part of its uh, you know, rib cage to right. squeeze and make sure it doesn't use that part for breathing. Okay. But what they quickly observed, that's not the case. It seems like uh, the boa can use any part of its... Uh, uh, rib uh, cage structure to squeeze its prey. So just a little bit of uh, anatomy. In a snake, do the lungs go the full length of the snake, or are they in a section? Well, that's How what they that were play? basically discovering. Okay. Is, you know, because what they notice is that uh, the snake is able to shift the breathing uh, apparatus from one part of its uh, you know, length to a different part. Okay. So it's like the lungs are actually moving. Oh, wow. So while well, the lungs aren't moving, the lungs are being compressed. And so that, you know, for us, the lungs are stable. They're just sitting in one spot. Right. But with these snakes, somehow the lungs are able to, uh, you know, shrink down and lengthen uh, so that they can continue to breathe. Because after all, they discovered it'd be very energy inefficient if the snake could only use one part of its body for squeezing. Okay. It's like if you fall on your prey and you got the wrong part, the prey gets away. Right. And so somehow the snake is able to squeeze with any part of its rib cage, which means it's got to be able to breathe with any part of its rib cage. Right. Because you know the snake. And the rib cage extends the length of the snake. Then. Yeah, the rib cage okay, extends right. the length of the snake, and so, uh, and the snake never uses all of its uh, mm-hmm. length to squeeze its prey. It wraps a few coils around its prey. Right. So part of the snake is not involved in the coiling process. And it's like, okay, that's where the breathing apparatus has shifted. And so the that's snake... That's pretty cool. It is really cool. <laughs> the snake is able to breathe on any part of its rib cage it wants, and it can squeeze any part of its rib cage mm-hmm. it wants. So, 
And then they know that the snake never uses all of its uh, full length to squeeze. Right. And only uses part of it, which means it's always part of the snake mm -hmm. uh, where the rib cage is not being exploited for squeezing. And that part can be used for breathing or did, it could be used for digesting. Right. Uh, did, did they figure out how the lungs effectively move? I mean, that, that's... The, the the dynamics of how you have this kind of mobile system, if you will, that yet you can still that's tethered to being able to extract the nutrients out of it is that's pretty remarkable. That's for future remarkable. research. That's for future <clears throat> research. Okay. What they did in the study, have you ever used one of these uh, wristband things for measuring your uh, blood pressure? Okay. You can buy them in drugstores now. There's right. Little, uh, basically, a cuff you put on your wrist mm -hmm. that you can. That's what they use. Okay. They bought one of those drugstore. Uh, blood pressure cuffs, and basically they uh, simulated the snake being squeezed. Okay. So they just put a bunch of these uh, cuffs on the snake and they got it squeezing the uh, snake. Okay. So that kind of simulated what it would be doing when it was uh, squeezing its prey. And then they noticed the breathing shifted to a different part of the snake. So that's now exactly what's going on <laughs> in the internal anatomy. Right. That's for future research, but they said clearly... Uh, the boa constrictors have this design. Now, they haven't done it on pythons. They've only done it on boa constrictors. Okay. There's a whole range of uh, constrictor snakes. They suspect this is a case for all constrictor snakes, but it was easiest for them to do the research on boa constrictors. So There's part of me that wonders. I mean, people have been catching snakes. I mean, you know, we've been studying snakes for centuries, would be my guess. How is it that we just now figured out that the breathing apparatus can be moving around? I mean, there's somebody had to cut apart a snake and said, wait a second, it just seems to be in a different place all the time. Or, Well, I'm sure that people have observed this phenomena, uh, you know, in the jungles of the world for some time. This is the first time it's showing up in the published scientific gotcha. literature. Okay, all right. <laughs> it's the first time somebody actually did an experiment on the snake mm -hmm. uh, using these uh, blood pressure. Uh, right. Uh, cups. So that's what's new. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if people in New Guinea uh, or Africa or, uh, you know, the Amazon have been observing this for centuries. Right. So because, you know, you, you watch snakes capture their prey and say, oh, it's still breathing. <laughs> and it's, but it's breathing in a different part of its body. So I can't imagine no one's ever observed this before. So, uh, so what do you see as the apologetic significance of this? I mean, it's cool just in and of its own well, right. Well, it's really cool, but it's a design we don't see in any other animal. Okay. So it's unique to these constrictor snakes. And, uh, you know, the anatomy, uh, anatomical structure is radically different from what we see anywhere else. So this, to me, is evidence. This is a special design that the creator put in it. Because uh, what we see in Psalm 104 is that God creates life with maximum abundance, maximum biomass, maximum biodiversity. Why wouldn't he make constrictor snakes? Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't he use a unique design uh, in these snakes? We see this everywhere in the animal kingdom. Uh, different animals have different designs. I mean, the cheetah is designed to run faster than any other animal in ways that no other animal manifests. Mm -hmm. So this is just, a, to me, another example of uh, the joy the creator gets in showing us a multitude of designs that are very elegant, uh, very beautiful, and optimal uh, for that species. Because mm -hmm. as the researchers were commenting, as the amazing energy efficiency of this system right, okay. uh, for the snake. 
I mean, you can imagine the snake being able to, uh, you know, constrict its prey, uh, but it would require, say, three times as much energy, mm-hmm. and uh, which means that these snakes would not be survivable. They wouldn't be able to capture enough prey right. to sustain themselves. And that's kind of what they're pointing out. It's not only an elegant design, a unique design, it's an optimal design, which is what we'd expect from the creator. You know, your comment is interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say this as though it's like, oh, I've got a deep, intimate knowledge of DNA. But one of the things that struck me uh, as I was looking around is like you, you ask the question of which organisms have the longest stretch of DNA. And, you know, you'd think kind of from a coding perspective, if you will, that the most complex organisms are going to have the, 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 the longest stretches of DNA. And it turns out it's like, you know, amoeba have more, you know, on, on the scale of humans. I mean, the things that have the most DNA or the longest DNA are not the organisms you think they are. And I remember thinking in there, it's like, I wonder if this is God has designed different ways of having having life look based on the code. So there's some where it's kind of more brute forcey, if you will, where the code's just kind of long and it does what it is. And then but you know, you get to humans and stuff, and there's this uh, sophistication in the code that allows it to be much shorter, but yet do far more than far more what what goes on. Now, it, it's related to your idea that God has these different designs that'll put in just to do these things. Uh, it, it seems like a similar sort of thing, and and really does point to the idea of being a creator there, not just this kind of simplistic. This is the outcome you would expect based on very simple processes. It's well, like a highly DNA, It's not the length of the DNA that expresses its complexity. It's mm-hmm. what the DNA is, what's actually in that those DNA codes. Right. So you can have a much longer DNA that is not as complex as a DNA chain that is shorter. Yeah. And it just makes the point. we got a lot more to learn about uh, genetics than exactly. we know now. No. <laughs> and we well, got a lot more to learn about <laughs> snakes, evidently, than what we know. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. It, that's a pretty fascinating discovery, Hugh. Thanks. Well, really good. Well, thank you for joining us today on Star Cells and God. You can join the discussion in the comments below. Remember to like this video and to subscribe for more content. New episodes of Stars, Cells, and God release each Thursday and are available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to share this video with a friend, and remember, the more we learn about science, the more reasons we have to believe in Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior. Thank you.